2009, September 29th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 5, The Chemical Revolution and the Nature of Matter. So, yesterday we did a very quick overview of the scientific revolution started by Nicholas Copernicus and others who basically saw that the Earth was not the center of the universe, but in fact was one of a series of planets circling the sun. It established that we're not, we are not a special place and in the universe and that our motions are just like those of the other planets. So it immediately begins to open up the idea that there are other places like the Earth. Today I want to look at the second intellectual revolution that sets the stage for this class, what I call the chemical revolution, which is the discovery of the nature of matter. What is stuff actually made of? So what we're going to explore today is this revolution that des describes the nature of matter. And there are four basic points that I want to make. The first is what I'm going to do today is I'm going to trace the history of our recognition of the true nature of the chemical elements. How do we discover what, what matter is actually made of? A lot of these advances relied on advances in technique and technology. Unlike the case of solar system where we can see the objects of our study, the planets, the sun, moon, and stars, we can't see the individual atoms that make up matter. We only deal with the bulk properties of very large numbers of atoms taken together. So how do you study something you cannot see by any available technology? Even here in the 21st century, we have barely reached the level where we can image, or at least roughly image, atoms and molecules. So how do we make any progress at all when you didn't even have a microscope? One of the key in insights into the nature of matter was to come from something called the periodic table of the elements. This is a good example of an important organizing principle entering science, here entering the nature of matter. We understood a lot about matter before we had even an inkling as to how atoms actually worked, and so the periodic table became an important touchstone. Any theory, atomic theory of matter had to explain why the periodic table works the way it did. Finally, another technological advance that was absolutely crucial was the invention of spectroscopy. Turns out spectroscopy is actually the key that unlocked the secret of the atom. It revealed the inner structure of matter in terms of its atomic structure and gives us, at the same time, an extremely powerful tool for exploring the universe. Not just for a chemist trying to find out what something is made of, but it's a tool we're going to use over and over and again when we look out at in the, into the universe to say, what is that star or what is that planet made of? What elements appear in that planetary atmosphere? Spectroscopy is the tool we're going to use. I'm particularly fond of spectroscopy because as an instrument builder and a scientist, I basically could define myself as a spectroscopist. We use spectroscopy as the, one of the key tools of modern astrophysics. So let's step back a little bit. Let's take the historical approach. The ancient Greeks, once again, we're going to hear the Greeks coming in as sort of the first ideas that enter in the West, conceived of matter in terms of four classical elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Now, this is a very ancient idea, and in fact, it's a very common idea. B Buddhist tr tradition has only four elements. Japanese tradition, four elements. It's common across mo cultures that didn't have much contact with each other. And it's a kind of a common sense, everyday kind of experience, right? There's earth and rock. There's stuff that's made of the what you find on the ground. There's water, which has different qualities than solid rock and, and, and soil. There's the air. It's clearly substantial because you wave your arms, you can feel it, you can feel the wind on your face. And then there's fire. Fire is the quality of heat. It destroys things. Water dissolves things. We build buildings up out of earth. This brick is nothing more than compressed, compressed rock. So it's a common sense nature that there are four fundamental different things, or different qualities I can assign to materials. 
And they were really concerned not so much with detailed composition as kind of the qualities, hot, cold, wet, dry, uh, solid, liquid air. Now, the atomists, which are represented by two particular thinkers from the 3rd and 4th century, Leucippus and Democritus, we've already met Democritus for some of his thinking that led to the idea of extraterrestrial worlds last week, conceived of these four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, as ultimately you could divide a rock up into smaller and smaller pieces. Eventually, you would have to get down to the point where you would stop cutting, where you would reach the smallest fundamental unit of being earth or being water or air. And they called that tiny, uncuttable thing an atom. Not the, not the modern atoms we think of, but just the smallest, indivisible, undividable, uncuttable unit of matter. Furthermore, they made another leap. They said that the same matter that makes up the items in the heavens is the same stuff as down here. The earth is just basically a really big, hot rock or a hot ball of fire. The Aristotelians, on the other hand, this is the Plato and Aristotle school of of 3rd century B.C. Athens, again, picking up this deeply pre-Socratic idea of four elements, said, you know those four elements? They're only found here on the earth, right? I build something up, it falls apart from earth. Water can flow out. Water can evaporate and turn into air. Air can, can move around. There's change. Fire goes out. Fire starts. All of these elements have an aspect of change associated with them. But change only occurs in the sublunar realm, below the realm of the celestial bodies. Therefore, they proposed, in fact, there was a fifth element not found upon the earth. It was the ethereal element of the, of the heavens, which they called the ether. Sometimes this is referred to in classical literature as the fifth essence. And you may hear the term quintessence used, which is the Latinization of that. So if someone says something is quintessential, That means it is made of the celestial material. It's made of something other than the earth. So, for example, the Aristotelians, when faced with Aristarchus' argument that, remember yesterday, gee, the sun's a whole lot bigger than the earth, so why is it it's absurd for the earth to move, and why don't we make the sun the center of the solar system? The Aristotelians would come back and say, well, because the sun is a celestial body, it's made of ether. Ether doesn't have the same properties as the earth, so, of course, the sun is light as a feather, even if it is bigger. That was their way of arguing around it. And these were the two fundamental schools of thought. Not surprisingly, the Aristotelian view was the most influential and passed on down through the Middle Ages, but the atomists managed to still have a foothold here every now and then. Jumping ahead into the Middle Ages, by the Middle Ages, alchemists, people who were not quite chemists and kind of sort of, an alchemist is to a chemist what an astrologer is to an astronomer. They're kind of working with matter, but they don't have any conception of what they're doing and their goals are different. For example, they took the five classical elements, earth, air, fire, and water. They adopted the Aristotelian ethereal celestial element, and they started adding to it because in their experience, there were some materials that were just kind of different. For example, Paracelsus, the great uh, medical professional of the 15th century and early 16th century, added to uh, his list of elements sulfur. Why sulfur? Sulfur was the metal that burned. It was the earth that burned. Mercury. Mercury is the metal that flows like water. And salt, because salt was the solid that precipitated out of liquids. If you had uh, any kind of uh, uh, contaminant in water or seawater and you make the water evaporate away, what are you left behind with? Not nothing, you're left behind with salt. 
So they realized that there was kind of there were different elements that weren't included in the classical five, and that they were very distinct in their properties. They didn't fit into one or other category. They kind of sat partway between them. Mercury was kind of halfway between Earth and water. Sulfur was kind of in this funny middle ground. The rock that burned was between Earth and fire, and so forth. Salt was between water and air, and they didn't seem to have one that went through the others. No one ever saw something go from solid straight into gas, except through the element of fire. You burn a rock, you burn a piece of wood. Now later additions began to say, well, that's a nice categorization, but you know, no matter how much I try to to refine gold, eventually I reach the point where I can't get purer than pure. Same with silver or even base metals like lead. So they began to add other elements, as they called them, things that could be refined down, and you couldn't make them any less pure than they could possibly be. And so the word element came to mean not just the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water, but anything was elemental if you could refine it down to a single pure form that could not be further divided into different forms. And that was what made them distinctive. Now, furthermore, in addition to identifying more and more elements. Basically, by material properties now, you can begin to see the shadows of chemistry starting to come into play. But the alchemists went one step further, and it's shown here in this, this beautiful painting by Joseph Wright from the from the 18th century of the alchemist in his laboratory. They were seeking not simply to catalog the elements, but to transform one into another. They saw this idea of the transmutation of matter. If you could understand the nature of matter, perhaps find this mystical element called the philosopher's stone, you might be able to transform lead into gold and silver. You would therefore multiply gold and silver. Now we laugh and smile and say that's an absolutely crazy idea. There were laws on the books in England up into the 18th and 19th century, uh, until the 18th century at least, against the multiplication of gold. So you couldn't make yourself your own wealth. Using the practices of alchemy, in fact, if you were an alchemist studying this, you could actually be arrested and perhaps even imprisoned or even burned at the stake if they thought you were engaged in witchcraft in this process. So you had to be kind of careful to be an alchemist in these days. Well, alchemy was all well and good, but people began to realize that you know, alchemy doesn't work, right? That's the real thing about science. You know, science works in the end. Science gets it done. Whereas mystical pseudoscientific things, there's lots of words and lots of cute ideas, but in the end of the day, they just don't get it done. And alchemy wasn't getting it done. Nobody ever turned lead into gold except for a few frauds who were doing a little sleight of hand under the table. So it clearly wasn't working. But there were areas of chemical, what we would now call chemical inquiry, that were working. That were digging deeper into the nature of matter and learning new things. And so we're going to jump ahead a bit to the end of the 18th century, to one of the real fathers of modern chemistry, the Frenchman Antoine Lavoisier. Lavoisier is one of those people to whom the overused word genius truly applies. He basically broke so much new ground that you can divide chemistry into pre-Lavoisier and post-Lavoisier. What Lavoisier was, he was the first quantitative chemist. He wasn't simply content to mix things together and come up with new compounds. He weighed them precisely. He would take two bits of reactants, put them together, get a product out of the reaction, but carefully contain all the products and show that there was exactly as much mass afterwards as there was before. That there was no mystery of some other essence coming in to help do the bonding, and then things weren't going away. Matter was being conserved. That idea of matter being conserved comes from Lavoisier. 
He also completely rejected the Aristotelian notion of four elements plus the, the alchemist elements and discovered that, in fact, through his chemical experiments, there were 33 distinctive chemical elements that he could identify, including the first ever identification and isolation of the elements of hydrogen and oxygen, the constituents ultimately of water. Furthermore, he made a very important statement. He claimed that these elements were immutable, that there was no chemical process that he could find that would turn one element into another, that they really were distinctive, as if they were completely different types of matter, and you could not turn lead into gold or carbon into oxygen or anything else like that. Any apparent transformations were merely chemical reactions, either combinations or breaking of these elements together into these compounds. In fact, all the various and sundry bits of stuff you could make were simply combinations of these elements. And he began to see in his experiments that while you could sort the elements out in various ways, not every element always combined with every other element. There were only certain pairings or combinations that worked. He was really starting to scratch, at the, at, get into the, the guts of what we now understand as the nature of matter. He performed extremely detailed quantitative experiments. He's really the first true modern chemist. It's very, this is a beautiful painting here by, by uh, David of, of Lavoisier and his wife. His wife was a full partner, by the way, in all of his work. She did engravings for, for his books and actually took part in many of his experiments. They were really very close partners in, 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 in every sense of the word. Sadly, Lavoisier's potential to have made tremendous breakthroughs, even more than he did in chemistry, was lost because as a member of the French aristocracy, he lost his head to the guillotine in, in 1794 during the French terror. These are Lavoisier's experimental apparatus. Tremendous change. These are physical apparatus, for example, various scales for measuring the products before and after a reaction. Vessels for doing chemical reactions where you sealed up and if any gases come off, you would, you would trap them so you could weigh everything. He was a, an amazing scientist, absolutely amazing man. He really kicked off the whole thing. After Lavoisier, the game was changed completely. The alchemists just vanish from the literature except for the crazy people. Before that, alchemy was actually pretty uh, reasonably rep reputable. You know who one of the greatest uh, alchemists of, of the period before Lavoisier was? Sir Isaac Newton. He actually did more work on alchemy than he did on, on physics. We tend to forget that. He never made any product product product. product progress at all in, in alchemy, but he completely revolutionized physics in one book. <laughs> Just goes to show you, if you ask the wrong questions, you're not getting answers, you're not getting it done. So the next comes up is a later contemporary of Lavoisier's, John Dalton in England. John Dalton, following along in Lavoisier's footsteps, made the next leap. He revived atomic theory, but not in the form that Leucippus or Democritus would have recognized. He recognized that all of the elements he called individual atoms. Each chemical element is an atom of a single and unique and immutable type. You could not change hydrogen to any other compound and vice versa. These elements cannot be changed or destroyed by any chemical means. What chemistry was, was not the changing of the nature of matter, but the different combination of those components of matter into new and interesting forms, into new compounds. And these compounds could be simple, just two atoms put together or very complex. Now Dalton had some bad ideas. For example, he thought water, he knew water, when you broke water apart chemically, you got oxygen and hydrogen out. So water was clearly a combination of hydrogen and oxygen. And he thought it was one oxygen and one hydrogen. 
Ammonia, another, another liquid that can be made in, in the earth or in gas form, was when you broke it apart, you got nitrogen and hydrogen. So he thought ammonia was just one nitrogen and one hydrogen together. He thought that you couldn't put two hydrogens together or two oxygens or two nitrogens together. The likes with likes couldn't do that. Now, he also invented a symbology for the elements, sort of an updating of the alchemical symbology. And it's a good thing that Dalton was not successful in this because you would have to do chemistry. You would basically make diagrams shown over here on the right from his book, The Elements. This would be of symbolic language for dealing with chemistry. It wasn't terribly fruitful. But the atomic theory coming in as the atom being this indi the indivisible unit of chemistry, the unit of matter, was the correct one. We still didn't understand how those atoms work, but we started getting an idea of what some of their properties are. Again, part of this illustration I want to get across in the lessons of science. We can often make great progress when we don't have complete knowledge because we're starting to see the outlines. And what's important is not having complete knowledge, but beginning to build self-consistent, coherent systems of thought to put those together and form explanations. So here was a case where people were building coherent systems of description with no clue whatsoever as to the actual underlying physics. Now, real progress began to be made in a following generation with this man, Jacob Berzelius. He's the other third of the fathers of modern chemistry. He conceived of these compounds now, following some work by Dalton, were actually combinations of atoms bonded together in whole number proportions. You couldn't make a molecule out of half a hydrogen and half an oxygen. You had to have all of an oxygen or all of a hydrogen or nothing. If you wanted to make water, you had to have an oxygen and two hydrogens. Oxygen and one hydrogen doesn't make water. It makes something else. Furthermore, he got rid of the symbolic notation that was in the way, and he developed the modern chemical notation we use today. You list the elements by a single or double letter combination to specify them, and then a subscript number, although Berzelius actually used a superscript originally, um, to give the number in proportion that appear. So water was made up of molecules of H2O, two hydrogens with an oxygen. Ammonia was a nitrogen and three hydrogens, and so on and so forth. CO2 for carbon dioxide, O2 for oxygen, was oxygen with two atoms bonded. He also did chemical work that recognized for the first time the material silicon, selenium, and thorium as distinctive elements. They began to add to the 33 elements of Lavoisier using these new chemical techniques and this new way of looking at it in whole number proportions. It was a tremendous breakthrough in concept because now we thought of matter as made up of atoms. Those atoms are made up of distinct elements and those elements have distinct chemical properties that could be sorted out and analyzed by chemical methods. But as people began to build up the number of elements, eventually by 1869, 67 separate chemical elements had been identified. By this point, people began to notice there were patterns that elements could be sorted by their weight from light elements like hydrogen up to heavier and heavier elements. And, and they thought of them as larger and heavier atoms. But there was a second property, this property I mentioned before, that not all atoms can combine with all other atoms, that you can only cern form certain combinations. For example, water and oxygen, hydrogen and oxygen can be formed, but you might not be able to form, say, iron and hydrogen. Well, actually, you can form iron hydrides, but that's a kind of a bad example. But not all elements could be formed in all proportions. You, not all combinations were possible. Only certain ones worked. And furthermore, people started noticing there were numerical rules associated with these combinations that were allowed and disallowed. People made up things like the rule of eight, and they were laughed at. 
come on, there's nothing like that going on. Yeah, there was. They were actually starting to see in these whole number combinations, in the allowed and disallowed combinations, they were beginning to glimpse the inner structure of the atom. It was beginning to reflect itself in which combinations were possible. Two men working simultaneously in Russia, Dmitry Mendeleev, and in Germany, uh, Lothar Meyer, simultaneously codified all of these relationships between the weight of an element and its bonding properties, likes bonding with similar properties, and noticed there were repeating patterns among those. And they resulted in a two-dimensional table where you could arrange atoms in order of weight and then in vertical columns by all elements that shared similar bonding properties. For example, elements that would form with hydrogen form four, always form with four atoms of hydrogen, or atoms would always form with three atoms of hydrogen, and so forth. They notice this, and they develop what are first periodic table of the elements. Periodic meaning repeating patterns. Now, what really makes Mendeleev here with this classical, long, scary Russian beard is that Mendeleev went one step further. He found gaps in his table. There were places where the table was incomplete. There was no element to stick in the, in the slot. Now, most people would have just said, oh, well, there's just no element there. But Mendeleev said, wait a minute, there should be an element there. We don't know what it is, but there should be one there. Mendeleev became one of the first people in history to predict the existence of a chemical element that no one even suspected. So the periodic table is not simply an organizing principle. It shows you that in that underlying order began to have predictive power. In fact, two of the predictions led within a few years to the discovery of the elements gallium and germanium. Exactly where Mendeleev said they should have been, with the weight he predicted and the chemical properties he predicted. So not only was he predicting the existence of these elements, he could tell you what their properties should be if the table was a proper description of matter. That's a tremendous achievement. It's a real change in the way in which we viewed chemistry. Chemistry was now not this botanical bug hunt. Well, that's a mixed metaphor. <laughs> was not this just hunt for new elements. We actually had a way to predict and carry forward even though we still, 1869, didn't know how atoms work. We didn't know what the detailed structure of atoms. The existence of these periodic table is telling us something about the structure of matter. We don't understand it yet, or at least not at this point, but this is, in fact, the periodic table of the elements. If I look at all these elements here, like on the far left, hydrogen, lithium, sodium, potassium, rubidium, cesium, and francium, at this point in history, hydrogen, lithium, sodium, and potassium were known. Rubidium, cesium, and francium were not yet discovered. In fact, these were to be discovered, rubidium and cesium, very shortly in the uh, same century, as we're going to see in just a moment. Francium was not discovered until 1939. But people knew it had to be there, but it's exceedingly rare. Over here on the right, helium wasn't in the original periodic table. It was unknown at this time. But neon, argon, krypton, and later xenon um, and radon and an element which was only made here, 118, in the last few years in subatomic particle, in, uh, particle accelerators. All of the elements in this row here, carbon, silicon, germanium, there's one, a germanium and gallium, were the two gaps in the original table of Mendeleev. These all have similar chemical properties in the vertical row. And as you go down from top to bottom, you get progressively heavier atoms. So, for example, in this row with carbon, silicon, and germanium is tin and lead. And... A, at the, not discovered until the 1970s, I believe, element 114. 
So it's a tremendously powerful organizing principle, and the organization is a reflection of the differences of atomic structure of all of these elements. So how did we begin to actually begin to now understand what that structure was? Well, one of the techniques was a technological advance, a a technique which goes all the way back to Isaac Newton, the technique of spectroscopy. If you took a prism, which is just a triangular piece of glass, nice big refractive piece of glass, and you passed white light or sunlight into it, what you found is the prism act like kind of a light sorter. Red light would only bend a little bit going through the prism, yellow light a bit more, green even more, and blue would bend the most before you ran out into the the violet and indigos down here. So all of the colors of the rainbow were simply a reflection, uh, simply showing you a different range that we now know is component colors of white is made up of all the colors of the rainbow and a prism split them apart. We now understand this as low energy to high energy photons, but at the time all they knew was there were different component colors that made up white. What became interesting was if you took not sunlight or or fire or something simple and ran it through a prism, but if you somehow made a luminous cloud of a pure sample of an element, what people began to discover, people like Kirchhoff and Fraunhofer and others, was that each chemical element had a completely unique spectrum. It didn't produce a rainbow wash of all the colors. It produced, in fact, very, very bright lines of emission with darkness in between. Furthermore, hydrogen always looked the same. Oxygen was a completely different set of lines and colors. Neon, even more different, and iron vaporized into a, into a gas showed an even different pattern of elements. So much so that as they took every single sample of every pure element and made a spectrum of it by burning it in a flame, the flame was invented by a fellow by the name of Bunsen, hence the Bunsen burner. You make a pure salt, or a salt compound, flash it in a flame and look at it with a spectrograph. Each element had a unique signature. They didn't know why it had that signature. But it was a beautiful tool because now you had a non-chemical way of telling whether an element was present in a material. You could burn it and make a flame spectrum. Furthermore, you could use the fact that you could catalog all the known elements if you came up with a new material and wanted to know what it is and you took its spectrum and it didn't match any of the other patterns, you found a new element. So it was a brand new analytic tool. We had no clue how it worked, but we established empirically that it did. Well, the people who did this really had the first true success of this was in the 1860s by Bunsen and Kirchhoff, who discovered those two elements in the hydrogen row, rubidium and cesium, using a spectrograph. Here's a picture of Kirchhoff and Bunsen's spectrograph. Bunsen brought the burner. Bunsen found a way to make a gas burner that made a gas flame so clean and hot you could vaporize virtually any mineral salt. So it was so blue, it wouldn't show up in the spectrograph except as a faint background. You then put a sample of the mineral salt on the end of a post and then swung it into the flame and suddenly the flame would turn yellow or orange or red. In fact, when the substance rubidium is put in the flame, it flames bright red, hence its name rubidium, like in ruby. Cesium (laughs) flames bright blue, hence cesium for the Latin cesus, blue. Thallium, bright green. Indigo, or indium, is indigo and so forth. So some of the new elements discovered by their colors and flames got their names that way. 
You then pass the light through a series of lenses into a prism and then to a little, little miniature telescope which looked at the light so you could then swing it around and analyze the spectral lines. You recorded them with your head. There was no way to photographically record things until later in the 1880s when spec photographic plates became powerful enough to use in the laboratory. So by doing this, suddenly people had a brand new tool for discovering other elements. And they found the same thing over and over again, that there were elements could be easily identified from their unique spectral signatures. They, again, they didn't know how it worked, but it worked well enough. Furthermore, in the 1880s, taking a spectrum of the outer part of the sun during a solar eclipse, a number of astronomers noticed a bright spectral yellow emission line, which had no terrestrial counterpart. Didn't know what it was. Didn't match any of the known chemical elements. Until in the 1895, Lockyer and others identified it coming out of well gas. It was a certain, people would dig deep wells drilling for oil or water. Gas would come out. Most of the times, that's natural gas. You light it and poof, it burns. But there was this gas that would not burn. It was called, came from a mineral area called clevite and eventually was called helium because it was first discovered in Helios, the sun. So the element helium, turns out to be the second most abundant element of the universe, was not discovered on the Earth. It was discovered in the spectrum of the sun and only later identified. And this is the power of spectroscopy that astro got the astronomers' attention. Here is a modern spectrum of the sun. I folded it over and over again here so it fits on the screen. Otherwise, it would go round and around the room a dozen times, from blue to deep red. Now, we get dark lines in here for a detail we'll talk about later in the class when we talk about stars. This is an absorption line rather than a emission line spectrum, but same deal, same deal. These lines I've circled here with the white ovals are lines of hydrogen. Okay, so the sun has got a lot of hydrogen in it. These two bright lines here in yellow are lines of sodium. So there's sodium in the sun. These three lines here in the green correspond to terrestrial lines of magnesium on the earth. So there's magnesium in the sun. A lot of those lines you see threading through here turn out to be iron lines. And this little, tiny, teeny, faint line right there is helium. That's the yellow line that was seen in emission in the outer, what's called, chromosphere of the sun in a solar eclipse. The sun in is 150 million kilometers away. We've never gone there. And yet Fraunhofer, using a spectrograph in the 1800s, could tell you the composition of the sun. Spectroscopy is a way to tell the composition of other celestial bodies. Fraunhofer and others showed the sun was made of the same elements found on the Earth, and you could do a one-to-one -one correspondence between those elements identified in flame spectra in the laboratory as in space, as on the, in the spectrum of the sun. It was the first time anyone proved what the composition of a celestial body was. It was technologically impossible to travel to even the nearest celestial body for more than a century. This is the power of the technique. But why does it work? How does it work? Why does every element have a characteristic spectral line signature? Well, I've been saying all along that what we're seeing here is a reflection of the deep inner structure of the atom. The combination of spectral lines tells us something about the arrangement and ordering of electrons, a number of electrons, in orbit around the nucleus. Now I'm going to break out of the historical mode and just jump ahead right into the answer. Furthermore, the arrangement of these electrons, in addition to determining the the Spectral properties is also what determines the chemical bonding properties, whether you have filled orbit shells or partially filled orbit shells. All of those periodic structures we saw, things that might be elements that form compounds of three hydrogens, things that form elements of four hydrogens. The nitrogen line is 
got three electrons, the, the carbon line has four electrons in the outer shell, and those form the basis for bonding. So not only do the arrangement of electrons give us chemistry, but the arrangements of electrons are part of what gives us the unique spectral signature. That's why we talk about them as chemical elements and the chemical spectral signature. So it's an immensely powerful tool. If I see the same spectral lines from the same element, I know that those objects in a celestial body have the same chemical properties as found on the Earth. It's a very important insight for us into exploring the question of life on other worlds. So what is the nature of matter? Well, atoms, those mysterious items thought up first by Leucippus and Democritus and actually brought into modern chemistry by John Dalton, turn out to be composed of a nucleus of heavy particles called protons and neutrons surrounded and orbited by electrons, the little particles that make up electricity. This is work mostly by Ernst Rutherford in, in the early part of the 20th century. Here I'm going to skip a lot of history. There are just too many players, and it's a whole class all by itself. So we get this heavy nucleus. Hydrogen is the simple at, simplest atom, one proton surrounded by one electron orbiting around. The proton is positively charged, and the neutron, which I've colored green here, is uncharged or neutral. It's neither positive nor negatively charged. The next step element is helium, which consists of two protons and two neutrons surrounded by two electrons. The electrons are very small, they're very lightweight, they're only 1 1836th the mass of a proton. So this is the constituency of matter. I build it up with even atoms. Democritus and Leucippus had it wrong. Atoms are not uncuttable. They can be broken into smaller pieces called subatomic particles. They can be broken up into electrons, protons, and neutrons. And it's those combinations of electrons, protons, and neutrons that gives me all of the element's properties and all of its chemical properties and spectral properties as well. Okay. Now, the other insight was where the atomists, like Leucippus and Democritus, got it right. Atoms really are mostly void. They're mostly empty space. Only one part in 10 to the 15 of solid matter is actually composed of real stuff. The rest is empty space, which is threaded by the electromagnetic fields that hold it together. So while the, this table seems awfully solid, it's only one part in 10 to the 15 of stuff. So why didn't my hand just pass right through it when I slapped it across? Because the electromagnetic fields holding the atoms together in the table and the electromagnetic fields holding the atoms together in my hand do not interpenetrate easily. And it's those fields, let me put my whole weight on the table, and I don't fall through mostly empty space. It only seems solid because of the electromagnetic fields that thread through them. So why do we have different chemical elements? Well, the key insight that Dalton and others had that elements were different by having different fundamental weights was a correct one. The chemical elements are distinguished by the number of protons in the nucleus. We call this the atomic number. Mendeleev and Meyer assigned atomic numbers to atoms before they understood that it was actually something fundamental. It was actually the count of the number of protons. They would just simply number them from hydrogen, the lightest, one, two, three, four, five, in order. That ordering of lightness turned out to be exactly total chance, the number of protons in the nucleus. A tremendous coincidence. So proton, one proton means hydrogen. Two protons means helium, and we have two neutrons in this form. Three protons means lithium. Four protons means uh, beryllium or boron. I always forget which one. Don't, don't quote me on it. Astronomers have it. My chemist friend should hear this. Astronomers have a very simple periodic table. Hydrogen, helium, and the metals. Now, each element is 
distinguished by the number of protons, but those neutrons add an extra twist. Each element defined by the number of protons can have one or more isotopes of that element, which are distinguished by a different number of neutrons along with the protons. For example, carbon. Carbon means six protons. The most common form of carbon is carbon-12. We put a little superscript number up to the left. Is six protons plus six neutrons. If I add one more neutron, so I have six protons and seven neutrons, six protons means carbon, but it's now carbon with an extra neutron, so I call it carbon-13, because it's six plus seven. Heavy carbon, carbon-14, has six protons. Six protons says I'm carbon, but it has eight neutrons, hence the number 14. So the way to think of it is the chemical symbol here tells you how many protons are in the nucleus. The number up to the left is the number of protons plus neutrons. The larger the number, the more neutrons, but always the same number of protons. Now, because they have the same number of protons, they also have the same number of electrons. Electrons and protons go one for one in an atom. Carbon has six electrons arranged in a pair of shells, a filled inner shell, of two electrons, and then four electrons in a partially filled outer shell. That means that carbon-13 has the same arrangement of electrons as does carbon-14, so they're chemically identical. They bond to form chelary compounds exactly the same as the most common form of light carbon. So they're chemically the same, but they have different masses. So here's some quick examples. Now, I'm sorry. So same chemical properties, different masses. Now, here's the trick. You can't put an arbitrary number of neutrons inside of a nucleus. There's a certain balance that has to occur. Too many or too few neutrons inside of a nucleus, and it comes apart. It becomes unstable, and it decays through a process we refer to as radioactivity. The alchemists were right. Elements can transmute into other forms. Just they couldn't do it with chemical means. They'd have needed a nuclear reactor or a particle accelerator to do it. You need, they were working at the wrong scale of energy. Because the scale of which material mutability occurs is at the atomic, the nuclear scale, not the chemistry scale. So for example, heavy hydrogen called tritium, a form of heavy hydrogen called tritium, is a proton plus two neutrons. One proton says I'm hydrogen. The three here tells me I got two neutrons in whole numbers. This has got too many neutrons, it's unstable. One of those neutrons turns into a proton and an electron, and now I have two protons in the nucleus plus one neutron, and I'm light helium. Two protons equals helium. That carbon-14, six protons plus eight neutrons, that's one too many neutron. The atom's unstable, and it breaks off, one of the neutrons turns into a proton, and now I have a nucleus with seven protons and seven neutrons. Hey. Seven neutrons moves you one over in the periodic table. That's now nitrogen. And the normal form of nitrogen, plus an electron, because I've got to make certain that the same number of charges are the same before and after, and then this funky particle called a neutrino, which just sort of makes all the energy and the angular momentum and the problem balance out. This particular form of decay is the basis of radiocarbon dating. Right? Carbon-14 is unstable, but it forms carbon compounds. It gets locked into an animal or a burnt piece of wood, and then it decays into nitrogen where nitrogen shouldn't be. Furthermore, free neutrons all by themselves are unstable. If I had a bottle of neutrons here fresh from the particle accelerator or nuclear reactor, in 13 minutes, half of them would be gone. They'd have turned into protons and electrons, and these ghostly little neutrinos, which makes all the balance book work out. 
This radioactivity is a very important property for us because radioactivity is characterized by a number called the half-life, a time scale involved. The half-life is the time for half the atoms in a pure sample of that element, that radioactive element, to decay and go away. The more radioactive an element is, the faster it's ha- the shorter its half-life, the faster it decays away. So let's take our unstable forms from the previous slide. Tritium turns into light helium plus an electron and neutrino with a half-life of 12.26 years. Tritium is made in nuclear reactors. In fact, it's one of the components of nuclear weapons, among other things. It used to be used on dials and watches before people figured that was a bad idea. Um, If I had a bottle full of tritium here, locked it away in a cupboard, came back 12 a quarter years later, half of the tritium would have turned into helium all by itself, spontaneously. Carbon-14 turns into nitrogen-14 with a half-life of 5,730 years. Lock some carbon-14 up inside of a piece of wood, burn it. I end up with a nice big ball of carbon with carbon-14, 13, and 12. I then leave it alone, buried in a cave somewhere, come back 5,700 years later, half of that carbon-14 is gone. Gives me a little time scale, like a clock, to know how long that wood has been sitting there. A neutron, like I said, goes away in about 12 minutes. So this half-life is really important. It's a clock. And it's a clock that doesn't care what form the atom is in. The atom can be locked in a table. It could be in the air. It could be in deep space. It could be locked deep in the earth. It could be underwater. The properties that give you the radioactive decay are intrinsic to the nucleus itself, to the atomic forces that hold those subatomic particles together. And it doesn't care what chemical combinations it's in, what environment it's in. It's always the same clock. This is a very, very powerful tool we're going to meet tomorrow. So here's an example of what's meant by half-life. Let's use popcorn. You never know. I got 16 kernels of popcorn here, and I start the microwave. Now, you could probably make a drinking game out of this, and I'm certain somebody has somewhere. Can you predict which kernel is going to pop first? Not really. No, you couldn't. You could probably make a game out of it, and whoever gets it right, has to, everyone else has to take a shot or something. But it's a totally random stochastic process. So I start out and I start my clock with 16 unpopped kernels. And let's say I come back 35 seconds later and those eight kernels have popped and eight are unpopped. Then 35 seconds is the half-life, okay? I keep the microwave going for another 35 seconds. Well, I only have eight kernels left, so how many kernels will pop in the next 35 seconds? Anybody? Four. Now I'm left with four kernels. How long will it take me to get rid of the last two? Another 35 seconds. After another 35 seconds, one, and then, well, I probably actually caused all these to light on fire and there's smoke pouring out of my microwave. But you get the basic idea. It's the time for half of the sample to vanish. That's the beauty of the half-life. And it's easily measurable. And, important point, it's totally independent of the form of the matter or its environment. It is determined only by the number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus. That's what determines the radioactive decay properties. A lot of elements are stable. They never decay. Some elements are made unstable, and they have a finite lifetime. It turns out popcorn's a bad, ex- bad example, as someone once pointed out to me, because it's actually not an example of a half-life process. See, I just lied to you. Actually, it's a, what's called a Gaussian normal process, because if you listen to microwave and a popcorn, Microwaving popcorn, it starts out slow, goes really fast, and then it tails off again. That's not an exponential decay. I just sort of cheated by picking up the exponential part at the beginning, or at the end. You want to know what a real half-life process is? 
beer foam. Now, for those of you who are under 21, you can do this with Coke. If you pour a beer into a glass, by the way, this, this research was in fact done in Germany. This is real data. Erdinger, Budweiser, that's the good stuff from Czechoslovakia, not the stuff made up north. No. And Augustiner, which is a marvelous beer from Austria. Oh, wait, um, <coughs> this is about half-life. Um, you start off with the height of the beer column in a cylindrical glass, and you ask how long does it take the beer column to collapse by half? And then you measure how long it takes to collapse by half again and again. Beer foam destruction of bubbles is, in fact, a half-life process. Try it with it. It works with any stiff foam, soap bubbles, including beer. Those of you over 21 can try it with the real brew. It works. Measure the half-life of Guinness, for example, compared to American Budweiser. Budweiser's too fuzzy and active. Short half-life. Guinness, mother's milk from Ireland. Ah, that's the good stuff. And it also has a very long half-life for its beer foam. So what are the lessons we've learned here? Well, spectroscopy of stars and planets, when it's applied, reveals that the stars and planets are made of the same elements found on the Earth. So not only do the same physical laws that we found here with the Copernican revolution on Earth apply to the heavens, but the stars and planets are made of exactly the same elements as the Earth. Now, admittedly, they come in widely varying proportions, but the hydrogen in the stars is the same as the hydrogen on Earth, the silicon in Distant planets is the same as the silicon and other stars as the silicon on the Earth. This means that if I learn anything about chemistry or chemical processes or properties, they occur everywhere in the universe. So terrestrial chemistry tells me about extraterrestrial chemistry. Any questions? Okay, in that case, I will see you all tomorrow. <laughs>